0: Well, good morning. If you uh, have a Bible, uh, we're going to be bouncing around a little bit today, but you can start in the book of Jonah, it's page 774 in a Blue Pew Bible if you want to follow along with us there. Um, But this morning we are on, uh, I guess, part two of this little mini-series on evangelism that we have tacked on to our series in Jonah. So if you're just joining us, we spent uh, six weeks going verse by verse through uh, the book of Jonah and now... Uh, last week and this week, taking kind of these principles from that prophetic book and applying it to the church today um, in hopes that we might recapture the joyful burden of evangelism. Uh, there's a guy named Max Stiles. Uh, he's a pastor of an international church in northern Iraq. And Max Stiles big in uh, missions and uh, kind of globally, work, seeing how that works through local churches. Uh, he last year wrote a little book called... Um, evangelism short book 100 120 pages max styles evangelism hopefully we'll have it in our library soon uh you can also buy it online for a few bucks um was really fruitful for me because he kind of simplified some things and he really said here's the grid for evangelism for the believer here's three questions i need to ask am i motivated am i equipped and third am i available if we are evangelizing, it means the answer to all three of those questions is yes. And if a believer is not evangelizing, which I think many of us, if we're honest, go through seasons or we're just in a prolonged season where it's just not happening, it means that one, that the answer to one of those three questions is no. And I found it interesting kind of putting Jonah through that grid. We, when we saw throughout the whole book, was Jonah equipped Yes, he was a seasoned prophet of God. He'd been used by God before in prophecy to uh, rightly handle God's word, uh, to declare it to the king of Israel. We saw that in 2 Kings chapter 14. So he was equipped, he was a veteran seasoned prophet. Was Jonah available? Yes, at least initially, until he made himself unavailable by running away. But the reason why God called him in the first place to rise and go to Nineveh is because he was able to do so. He was available to do so. So two out of three, yes. But number three, was Jonah motivated? No. No. His prejudices against Nineveh as this kind of foreign, evil people kept him from wanting to obey God's word, and so he fled. There was a fear, not that what would happen to him, there was a fear that they would repent because he did not like them, he did not want them to be saved by God's grace. So Jonah was not motivated, and that was where he went wrong. Uh, last week in part one, we, we set the foundation for evangelism. We looked at what may be the motivation of why we should be passionate evangelists and that everybody is in this together, that there's not just certain people that have to be evangelists and then everybody else, that everybody who calls himself a believer is called to evangelize. We looked at the gospel and what the gospel is and why this is an exclusive message with an inclusive invite. And then we looked at how we can be equipped with how Christians can go about this. Embodying grace for the world to see, to be grace givers, to embrace adversity, to ask and answer the right questions. And so this morning in part two, uh, with kind of the foundation set, we go, I want to look at what does it actually look like? I want to get very practical. It's going to be a different kind of sermon for me, so we'll see how that goes. But it's going to be very applicational. What's it look like to be available for evangelism here in 2019. So uh, if you did miss last week, I would really encourage you to go back online to the church app and listen to it because it provided a lot of the underpinning, a lot of the scriptural um, foundation for what uh, today is going to be, where we're just going to get very practical, very honest about where we're at. And um, to start, you know, uh, Jonah, along with any other prophet in the Bible, uh, had to face these kind of various obstacles within their culture to see what are the obstacles to the message of God in this time, in this place. And everybody in the church along the last 2,000 years has had to do that same homework on the culture that they're in. Um, yesterday, uh, we had a memorial service for my grandfather who passed a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he was a missionary in uh, Belgian Congo and then Kenya for 52 years. And part of his training is to train what are the obstacles to the gospel in Congo in the 1950s when he first went. How has that changed over time across his ministry? That is work he's had to do. And I think oftentimes we think, yeah, that makes sense for cross-cultural missionaries, and we never do that work ourselves. What are the obstacles to proclaiming the good news in Bergen County in 2019 or in the metropolitan area? Um, this could obviously be multiple, you know, sermon series in and of itself, uh, but I just want to give you three quick things. What are obstacles you're going to face? If you're going to walk out here and go, I'm motivated and I'm equipped, what's it look like to do that? What are three obstacles you're going to face? Um are obviously going to have to be a little bit broad, kind of stroked, but I think um, hopefully you will see these to be true uh, first we are in a suburban culture and one of the words if you kind of listen to people when they talk about the suburbs one of the words that get attached to the suburban culture is the word settled people come to the suburbs to settle and the irony is is that while that's always the desire it is never the reality But people want to be comfortable, they want to be settled, and so they go to the suburbs to settle into a home, and they try to get settled into a school system, and they are settled hopefully in a job that can afford the expensive suburbs. We're settled into our hobbies and our friendships, and on and on. So along with that, people are settled in their minds with what they either believe or don't believe. And there becomes this overall sense of apathy towards being open to new things, especially a new belief system or a foundational way that you would view the world. Um, you, You might look at like a city life where it's kind of a little more spontaneous, things are maybe a little more open to change, but suburban lifestyle, we're set. Thanks, but no thanks. Those big decisions have been made and it's not often out of, out of kind of disrespect, it doesn't get necessarily hostile, it's just I'm good, that, that's good for you and you believe those things, but I am good. And there's this general malaise in the suburbs and apathy towards things of faith. And I think a lot of it is rooted in uh, uh, j- just not having the energy to think about what would it take for me to undergo a major change in my mindset or routine. So even if there are kind of little stirrings of like, man, something's not right, something's not really um, settling very well in my heart, in my mind, uh, there might be even the, the um, admitting that, yeah, maybe my belief system is a little flawed, but you know what? At this point, I just can't afford to really shake it up right now. Which is why, if you recall from last week, I said it often takes some major adversity or a trial in someone's life for them to be awakened to the gospel, just like the storm was for the sailors in the book of Jonah. And the simple reason why is that the suburban lifestyle is busy, capital letters. It is set up for us to just fill our schedules all the time, some of the longest work hours combined with the longest commuting hours, extracurricular activities for everything in abundance. Everything is so full. Even just amongst our church, when you just ask, man, how are things going? You know what the number one answer is by far? Things are busy. And I get it. It's a safe move to tell your pastor you're busy, all right? Because you don't want to trust your pastor to, like, now ask you to do something. I'm busy. Okay, I get it. But you know why I think also people say that a lot? Because it's true. Man, life is just nonstop. And, and, and so to, to think about like um, actually be having a conversation about being open to a new faith or a new worldview, in their minds, they just go, man, that's just another thing or something that I would have to actually start changing the things I'm already busy doing. And so, no, thank you, I'm settled. That is a major obstacle for evangelism in the suburbs. Number two, I'm just calling the age of secularism. Uh, We talked a little bit about this last week, but I think it is the fastest-growing worldview, the fastest-growing religion in the world is secularism, at least in America, with no attachment to any specific religion or God, which has created this whole category of people who would say, I am spiritual, but I'm not religious. The fastest-growing worldview in the country. And the reason is because we are exposed to every kind of religion, we see it all, we can read about it all in the matter of moments, and so we kind of throw up our hands and just say, okay, all religion, flattened out, believe what you want, you believe what you want, just keep it over there, do not bring it here. Keep it in the private square, do not bring that into the public sphere. Keep God out of it. And so what happens over time when a culture grows in that mindset, what fills that vacuum? Is this idea of secularism where everyone has a right to their own privacy and, and you don't have a right to talk about what I believe. And so it becomes apathy towards truth and claims of truth. Everything becomes relative. And a hostility can start to form towards those who are trying to persuade others. You don't have a right to persuade me, to challenge me. And what happens is that that becomes almost blinded to the fact that they themselves are trying to persuade others to not be persuasive. And so you can see how it kind of falls into itself. And secularism is just the name of another religion. They're doing this very thing they claim to be against. It's the intolerance of the tolerance movement, and we're seeing it grow seemingly by the day. So so how does that affect evangelism? What obstacle does that kind of pop up? And I think primarily it just increases fear of those in the church. We might not want to admit that, but we're afraid We're afraid to say what we believe because we don't want to be painted as the bigot. We don't want to be condemned online. We don't want to be spoken against or written against. And so there's a fear of a secular culture which serves as to be the primary fuel for apathy in the church when it comes to evangelism. I think it's a reality we have to own up to and be honest about. Third, not the only one, but just three I'm highlighting this morning, what I'm calling the age of distraction. It is possible to go days upon days into weeks upon months to ever, ever have to actually take any time to think about why do we do what we do? And the reason is because we are so distracted all the time. And this isn't just, oh, it's a problem out there. Like, man, this is a problem for me. It is the art of self-avoidance because we can fill our minds our eyes with so many things all the time everywhere we go in a matter of seconds that we never feel the burden of being alone and we never have to confront some unsettled feelings that might come up because we can just stuff them and not allow our conscience to really bear witness to that because we can be so distracted and we could avoid silence And keep ourselves from ever engaging in sustained deep thought about any one thing, especially the state of our souls or what we believe. So it's not that people are just actively going, I don't believe that. People are just actively not thinking about it. Um, Alan Noble, I I mentioned this book last week. I'll get something out published this week about some of these different books I'm referencing that would be really helpful. He wrote a book called Disruptive Witness. Again, probably the best book I've read in 2019. He wrote this brilliant chapter on distraction, and I want to share this one quote. It'll be on the screen, I believe. He says, The distracted age affects our ability to communicate about matters of faith and ultimate meaning because, one, it is easier to ignore contradictions and flaws in our basic beliefs. Two, we are less likely to devote time to introspection. And three, conversations about faith can be easily perceived as just another exercise in superficial, individualistic identity formation. So th- there's many more, but three for this morning. Suburban culture, secularism, distraction. These are current obstacles Grace Church is facing in evangelism in 2019. And to that, to one or all of those, you might go, man, I don't know if we win this battle. This feels a little impossible because um, the reason why we cannot do that, we will not do that, is because every generation has had to learn the joyful burden of passing the faith to the next generation. And again, I said this last week, but again to remind us, this is not just for like people in our lives we sometimes cross paths with, this is our children, people growing up in our church. Any given week, we have 100 kids from birth to fifth grade at Grace Church, And they're not just going to automatically get rolled in. It doesn't work that way. They need to put their faith in Jesus Christ. They need to uh, receive the grace of God. and, And they need to be taught and guided in that. So these are obstacles for our children to believe in Jesus Christ as long as well as everybody else. And so we are going to stand on the rock that Jesus declares in Matthew 16 when he said, On this rock, rock meaning the gospel of Jesus Christ, where I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this morning, what I just want to do for you is just encourage you in your life of evangelism. I think oftentimes we can get shamed in this. Just Okay, tell me how terrible I am at this for the next 30 minutes. Like, that's not what I want to be. I want to be an encouragement to us that we can do this, and we must do this because we're standing on the rock. And it's something we can do, how I'm going to kind of break it up is is three things on a very personal level, very applicational, and then three things on a kind of corporate level, us as a church. And so it's going to be rapid fire, again, not your normal sermons, going to be kind of more outline based, but I I hope my prayer all week is that this would just be a spark plug for us at Grace Church to be deeply thinking about what can evangelism look like right now in your life. So we'll start personal, personal evangelism. Number one, um, be who you are. Be who you are. I think the biggest mistake people can make when it comes to evangelism is that they think there's a certain kind of person they need to transform into in order to evangelize. You got to be this extrovert, totally bold, say anything to any person. I was with one guy once getting a Subway sandwich, and the guy's making a sandwich. He's going can your God feed 5,000 people with that sandwich? My God can. I was like, really? Like, what's what we're doing? And you know what? Like, he didn't say what he was like a jerk. He actually led to a conversation with a guy making a sandwich. I was like, I would never do that. Um, but, like, it, like, we think in our minds, this is a caricature of a person I need to be if I'm going to evangelize. And, and there's these, all these kind of, like, what I would call pickup lines that we think we have to use. Like, do you know where you're going when you die? Like, I don't know. Maybe just not everybody has to do that every single time and in general i said this last week i'm supportive of evangelism training but my one issue with it is i think you kind of come out of it going okay i have to be this kind of person to be an evangelist and i'm not that kind of person and then it just doesn't work and so i think a major reason why people feel just generally uncomfortable with evangelizing in their life is because they're trying to be somebody they're not and it's exhausting to be somebody they're not amen doesn't just get exhausting to try and be something you're not day after day, and so then eventually that just kind of drifts away. Maybe this isn't for me. And so, just consider with me Jonah and just the prophets. We can talk about everybody in the Bible, but just Jonah and the prophets. If you were to read the prophets, you would see one message unified amongst them all, but they are all a little bit different in the way they go about it. There's 19 prophets in the Old Testament. And they're all just a little bit different. You go Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel, and you get a feel for them as people, not just their message, but that God wanted them to maintain their distinct characteristics and personalities in the midst of them proclaiming God's word. So when God called Jonah to rise and go up to Nineveh, he didn't say, Jonah, become this robot and just act like this person because that's how you have to be. He wanted him to be Jonah, And he wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh. That's why he went and pursued him across the sea. That's why he brought him back and then resend him to Nineveh. He goes, no, I want Jonah to go share the message, not just a robot. Um, Third book, sorry, I'm giving you just a lot of books this morning. Rico Teist, Honest Evangelism, brought it up last week. Um, He had a helpful section of sharing different examples of evangelists in the New Testament. So just we're going to have them on the screen. Just different forms of just what people were like in the New Testament. You had Peter. And Peter was kind of bold and confrontational. But he always managed to do it in a way that wasn't disrespectful. Do you have those people in your life? Like They they can just say anything to anyone. And yet it comes across with some compassion. Like where, where they say something. You're like, if I were to say that, I'd just be a jerk, I think. But they're saying it and they're like, they're actually doing it out of love. And people are responding to that. Peter could be bold, he could be confrontational, but he always managed to maintain respect for people that he did it with. But then you have Paul, and if you kind of trace Paul's kind of personality throughout the Old Testament, he's very calculated, he's very almost intellectual, he uses reason, he uses logic to these, unpack these weighty doctrines in a way that could be understood. He's so brilliant that he could talk about brilliant things in a way that's actually very understandable. And he listened a lot, and he spent time in places, years just pointing people to Christ. But then a couple more. You have in John chapter 9 this guy, he's not named, so I'm just calling him the ex-blind man. And he was healed by Jesus, and when he was interrogated by the Pharisees, um, he refused to enter into heated debate. They were like, who did this to you? Tell me about him. And he just kind of pointed to his own transformation and said, listen, I'm not going to argue with you. All I'm going to tell you is this. Once I was blind, now I could see. And, And his own transformation was his witness. Like, listen, guys, this is what I was like before Jesus came. This is what I'm like after Jesus came, and he makes a difference. And so he's very clear, it's Jesus who did it, and yet he, make, he lets his own transformation speak for himself. His, his evangelistic style is just to be a witness. And then fourth, Rico talks about the woman at the well. John chapter four. Jesus goes and tells her about herself, the, the sinful life she's leading. And does she get offended? Does she kind of hit back? No, she goes home and says, you guys got to come see this guy. And she becomes just this kind of connector where she's using her personality to persuade others to go get in front of Jesus. And so she's not herself sharing the message as much. She's just going, come to his feet, come to him, come hear from him. And you could go on and on, but the, the point is this, there's no one way to be an evangelist. And you have been uniquely wired and gifted in Christ. And I just ask that don't deny that within you. Embrace how weird you are, because you're all a little weird, and I'm a little weird. And that's okay. You don't have to hide that in order to be an evangelist. Use your personality. Use the way God has wired you, uh, not in a way that's sinful, but in a way that you've been redeemed and transformed. And let that be the most effective way. Because, one, you'll, you'll sustain it a lot longer. You'll be joyful in it, not despite it. Number one, be who you are. Number two, be where you are. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, Wherever you go, there you are. Jonah experienced this when he fled on the boat. He thought, okay, if mission is going to happen in Nineveh, I'm going the exact opposite direction. But wherever he went, there he was. And God used him, however reluctantly, to share the message with the sailors on the boat to be the picture of being sacrificed for sin, which the sailors came to faith. And so I I do think there is this trap in us where we can think evangelism only happens in certain spaces and times. And so the church has to run some kind of evangelistic event. There has to be some outreach program. I have to go on a missions trip to do it, to hand out tracts, to start conversations. But without that, I just can't do it. And we fail to see the rhythms of our life and the places we live, work, and play as the very places where the most effective evangelism will happen. Because if evangelism is is like, if I'm casting this out going, okay, church, this is something you have to add to your life. We're in the suburbs, remember? Nobody's looking to add something to their life right now. We would hear that and go, no time, can't do it. But if evangelism is something we incorporate into our life, now we're not adding something, we're re-envisioning how we do what we do. So do you commute into the city and feel like you're just always racing there, going to work, trying to race home to get some time with the family, to eat dinner, to bring your kids to different things, and you're just always stretched for time? Where are things on the commute or at work that you can do to just increase this witness wherever you are? Uh, We we have a member, um, I was talking to him a few weeks ago, who kind of went to his company and just kind of started inquiring what it would take to start a prayer group at his office. And if that's something that's even possible. And he got the green light. They're like, yeah, you can do that. Now he's in the process of going, what's that going to look like? How can I incorporate that? How can I gather believers at work and then also have it be an inroad for people who are not believers to pray together or receive prayer? Do you stay at home with the kids? Where are the places you go? Playgrounds and libraries and where you can kind of start just forming relationships and cultivating meaningful relationships with people in the, in the process of your day-to-day life with the kids. And, and so the emphasis is this. It's not about relying on a program, But rather, considering where a compassionate love for people in your current routine could manifest itself in conversations that speak about faith and purpose. And so, the question is not where are the places that I need to go in order to evangelize? The question is where can I evangelize in the places I already go? That's number two. Number three be distinct. A word the church needs to recapture in Ridgewood in 2019 is the word distinct. To follow in Jesus' footsteps in living a life that contains choices and habits that are distinct from the world around us. There's an age-old phrase, if you've been around church, you've probably heard it over and over and over again, (laughs) that we are, as the church, called to be in the world, but not Of the world. And there is biblical basis for that. Is Jesus praying for his disciples in John 17, saying, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as that I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You gotta be in this world. And not of this world. And we all know that phrase, at least if you've been around church in a while, you've heard that phrase. But when you break it down, where does that happen in your life? We can recite it. It looks good on a website. It looks good on social media. I'm in the world, not of the world. Okay, what's that actually look like? Like, have we actually taken the time to look at my day, look at my calendar, look where I'm going? Where are there opportunities to be distinct? We have to be very practical, Because if we don't, we're going to get it wrong in two ways. We're either going to be just immersed in the world or isolated from it. When when a church is immersed in the world, somebody could look at your life Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, just what you do, where you go, what you fill your time with and go, there's nothing different about that guy than anybody else on the train or anybody else in their world. There's nothing distinct about that. Or you can get to a place where you, in your day-to-day routines and schedules, you kind of swing the pendulum to the other side and say, they're never around the world. They have created their bubble. Their only relationships are with other believers. And there's never any opportunity, even if you were distinct, for anyone to notice. And so I just want to say, when it comes to being a Christian, the worst thing you can be is generic just indistinguishable from the world around you or completely isolated from the world around you. And, and, and I think one of the benefits we have in our culture now that is growing more and more secular is that simple decisions in our lives that are shaped by our faith will be more distinct than they ever have been. Living out a Christian faith will stand out more today than it did five years ago, than it did 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, or 30 years ago. So when you get kind of deeply ground-level practical here, what are habits and lifestyles that can be distinct from the world around you? Everybody needs to do this work themselves. But let me just kind of get our minds rolling. Here's a few kind of rapid fire. Um, Number one, embrace silence. In our super distracted world, silence is so rare. Rare. And we are dominated by our devices at all times. Second, in conjunction with that one, this one's very personal for me because I struggle with it. Be present in conversation with others. You know what I... uh, Hate would be a strong word. Dislike most about myself, I do without even noticing sometimes. Talking to someone. And just every two seconds... Notifications are going, oh, ESPN, somebody just got drafted. <laughs> just, got, just got a spam email. And I'm talking to somebody, but every two time I'm just down, I'm there. And like that, what the message does that send to somebody? Like, yeah, I'm here, but no, I'm not really here. Okay. You're still more important than this one. Oh, oh this one you got with me. And it's terrible. And you know what really kind of smacked me in the face? This past week, after writing this, <laughs> I'm sitting on the floor with my four-year-old playing and my four-year-old tells me, Dad, get off your phone. <laughs> I, could, I, I don't even know what it was. What I was even looking at it was like Twitter something terrible. Like, and, and, and that is so real that in a distracted age, your actual presence will stand out. And how refreshing it is when you're talking to somebody, to go, this person's actually talking to me. They're looking me in the eye. That's distinct now. That's more rare now than the constant looking away. How about something just like praying before a meal? Even out in public or with a friend, you don't have to grandstand, just silently taking that time. I'm going to stop because whatever I do, I want to do for the glory of the Lord, including what I eat and what I drink and just not take any meal for granted. A distinct witness. Bigger picture now, just consuming less and giving more. Being generous with both your time and your money to look to spend it and deploy it for the good of others. That will stand out in an increasingly consumeristic, materialistic lifestyle. And then just last one, and we can go on and on. Observe a Sabbath. A Sabbath in the suburbs, what would that be like? Intentionally resting and clearing the calendar for you and your family, or you and or your family, where you're just spending meaningful time together, just not working, and not feeling like I could go all go, 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 and be productive all the time. But here's the point. All of us have to do this. Maybe that list doesn't work for you. Maybe you're fine there. What are other ways... You can be distinct as you look at your elements of your life, look at your calendar, where you're going, who you're around, what are biblical habits and rhythms that could cultivate meaningful conversations. And they're good for your soul. It's not just for your evangelistic witness, but it can be both to give you these opportunities to stand out. So those are three very basic, hopefully practical things you can do personally. Um, But secondly... We're going to look at what can we do as a church, the corporate side of evangelism. I think it's often the most overlooked. Evangelism is not an individual sport, okay? Evangelism is football, not golf. You can't dominate by yourself. You're limited in what you can do as just one person, and the contributions of others is required. And I think the church's contribution is not occasional evangelistic events or outreach events. It is the present weekly gathering we have every single week, this. What we're doing now, if done intentionally, is an evangelistic witness. Three reasons why. We're going to go fast here. Number one, the worship service itself. The worship service is in and of itself an evangelistic witness Sunday after Sunday. Uh, The staff, uh, Pastor Jeff ran like an online conference for us to attend uh, a couple weeks ago and and one of the takeaways I got was from a senior pastor pleading to other senior pastors saying this, do not say, hey guys, next week is a great week to bring someone to church. And we always kind of do that and it's these hot spots. We do it around Christmas, we do it around Easter, But when we do that, when we pick certain weeks to encourage one another to bring someone to church, what we're also saying is you can't trust us to bring us one every other week. Just these weeks. And it's this implication like, guys, next week we're going to kill it. Like we are going all out. We got the A team, man. We're holding nothing back. Next week be a great week to impress somebody. But rather, he said, create a culture where your church knows every single week is a great week to bring somebody new. That you can trust us with your friends and with your family to bring non-believing friends and family. If you're somebody here and you're a non-believer and somebody brought you, uh, we just want to know. Like, we love that you're here. And our ho- primary hope is that you don't feel judged, but you're just encouraged by our faith community. And that somebody invited you because they love you, not because they want to judge you. But we are always thoughtful as a staff about this gathering, that the gospel should be articulated every Sunday, not just Easter and Christmas, because preaching is not preaching without the gospel. Because preaching doesn't only awaken faith, it is what sustains faith in our church. People need the gospel who are saved just as much as the unsaved. But the worship service is not just about the preaching. Every aspect of it portrays a distinct witness. Think about this with me. Think about our music. Um, We are not consumed with being the best show in town. We have a worship director and a worship team that does not perform for us in concert, but seeks to lead us in congregational singing. And we hopefully sing songs whose tone are reflected by the lyrics and whose lyrics are reflected by the gospel. Songs of praise, songs of confession or lament, songs that celebrate a Savior, songs that prepare our hearts to hear the word preached, songs that are a response to the word of God that was preached. And in this way, we don't come in going, I like the music only if it's a certain style. We like the music because it's the means through which our church worships God together. Think about our greeting time. This is Why do we have a time, about 30 seconds every Sunday, to just shake hands in the middle of the service? Isn't that kind of weird? Isn't that kind of random? Like, can't we just do that before or do that after? I mean, for an introvert, isn't that just the most haunting part of the service every week? <laughs> like, oh no. And, and I have to quote, again, Alan Noble here, uh, because based on what he says, it's just too good. He says, I will likely always be introverted. But I should not always feel that the privacy of my head is the safest and best place to be. In welcoming one another, we are immediately reminded that worship is not a private affair. We have gathered as a people, as a congregation, and just as together we are dependent on our redeeming creator, so too are we dependent on one another. This is why we stop and we greet one another in the worship service. Because it embodies our dependence on one another that you can't get from attending church online. Think about our congregational prayer each week where we uh, corporately confess our sins. That we embrace just quieting down, coming before the throne as a church. Where we, where we acknowledge that we all are equal in our struggle with sin. And that might happen on a different spectrum, but we all need the day-by-day, week-by-week sustaining grace of our Savior. And we plead for one another before God, those who are hurting in our congregation, those who are suffering in both ways known and unknown. Think about baptism and the Lord's Supper, The, the two ordinances that are meant to be done as a church body, not alone to be witnesses to God's transforming power in one another, to be reminded of the body and blood of Jesus broken and spilled for us. And then there is the preaching of God's word, where conveying the knowledge of God translates into a passion for God, a weekly stirring of the heart through the engaging of the mind. This is the worship service. This is why it's so vital. This is why each and every week it's its own witness. Number two, the witness of love. Part of a healthy church culture is one where people come to the weekly gathering with others in mind. How can I love on somebody else? You know, the church in our day has turned very individualistic, where people view view it as what they need from church as opposed to what they contribute to as being part of a church. Do I need to go to church today? And we go through a grid of, do I need it? Am I feeling it? Do I need to pick me up? And it's always just about me. So there's a couple layers to this. Um, my, My hope and prayer that Grace Church, that we would come praying that God would, yes, strengthen their faith, fill their soul, but also to be a means of encouragement for a fellow brother or sister in Christ to encourage and build up at least one other person that week. Like, what would this church look like if everyone walked in the door with that mindset? Who is just one person I can encourage this week, that I can build up, that I can speak into their life? This would become a distinct haven of love and support that we couldn't get here fast enough. With a simple approach, God used me to encourage one person this week. And then from an evangelistic standpoint, to know that fellow members are going to be bringing somebody with them for the first time. And their first impression of Grace Church is not going to be me preaching. It's not going to be us singing. It's going to be the people you're sitting with in the pews. The first impression of Grace Church. How are they treated? How are they greeted? How how does this church treat one another? Uh, Max Stiles, his church in northern Iraq, he says this in his book, he said, Quote, I've heard from non Christian people that the church was strange to them. Amen, we're strange. But what drew them into the fellowship was the love amongst its members. I think scripture powerfully illustrates this point. Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Look, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Did you notice that? How was the church growing in Acts? Were they doing special evangelism programs? No, their love for one another in the church served to be an evangel- evangelistic witness to the world. The best evangelism technique is loving other believers well. Third and last, the body of Christ. One of the biggest tragedies of I think, of Americanized Christianity is the separation of saving faith in Jesus Christ and membership into a body of believers in line with an individualized culture there is this huge category of people who say i'm a christian i believe i have a personal relationship with jesus i just don't go to a church or i don't belong to a church i might attend one from time to time but i'm not joining the church because i don't need it and not only is this not true anywhere in scripture it's also an awful witness to the world that I think the reason why there is this huge category of people of I'm spiritual but not religious massively growing is because it is a generation after of saying I'm a Christian but not a church member. Spiritual but not religious is the eventual landing place from a Christian who's not a church member, and certainly for their kids and the next generation after them. Brothers and sisters, you will always need a church, and the church will always need you. And if you look around and say, there's not a lot of people like me, I say, amen, that's why we need you even more, because we want to be as diverse as possible, using everybody's gifts to serve the body. The body of Christ and evangelism are intimately linked. And so if you don't actively attend a church, I would encourage you to. If you live somewhere else, uh, go home and attend actively a church and join that church. If there's other churches in this area you're drawn to, go join that church. We want people to join churches and as a collective body of Christ, build one another up. That then serves to be a powerful witness to the world. So two weeks, evangelism, we packed a ton in and I did not say all there is to say about evangelism, hopefully just extracting from Jonah and hoping again, it's just an encouragement to you and a spark plug to carry this forward in prayer, asking the Spirit to lead you in this. Are you motivated? Are you equipped? And are you available? Let that be true of everybody in Grace Church that the answer is yes to all three. Let's pray.